Chapter Twenty Nine of the Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Nine. It was the copy of our conference. In bed she slept not for my urging it. At board she fed not for my urging it. Alone it was the subject of my theme. In company I often glanced at it. Comedy of Errors The next morning saw Bucklaw and his faithful Achates, Craigengelt, at Ravenswood Castle. They were most courteously received by the knight and his lady, as well as by their son and heir, Colonel Ashton. After a good deal of stammering and blushing, for Bucklaw, notwithstanding his audacity in other matters, had all the sheepish bashfulness common to those who have lived little in respectable society. He contrived at length to explain his wish to be admitted to a conference with Miss Ashton upon the subject of their approaching union. Sir William and his son looked at Lady Ashton, who replied with the greatest composure that Lucy would wait upon Mr. Hayston directly. I hope she added with a smile, that as Lucy is very young, and has been lately trepanned into an engagement of which she is now heartily ashamed, our dear Bucklaw will excuse her wish that I should be present at their interview. In truth, my dear lady, said Bucklaw, it is the very thing that I would have desired on my own account, for I have been so little accustomed to what is called gallantry, that I shall certainly fall into some cursed mistake, unless I have the advantage of your ladyship as an interpreter. It was thus that Bucklaw, in the perturbation of his embarrassment upon this critical occasion, forgot the just apprehensions he had entertained of Lady Ashton's overbearing ascendancy over her daughter's mind, and lost an opportunity of ascertaining by his own investigation the real state of Lucy's feelings. The other gentlemen left the room, and in a short time Lady Ashton, followed by her daughter, entered the apartment. She appeared, as he had seen her on former occasions, rather composed than agitated, but a nicer judge than he could scarce have determined whether her calmness was that of despair or of indifference. Bucklaw was too much agitated by his own feelings minutely to scrutinise those of the lady, he stammered out an unconnected address, confounding together the two or three topics to which it related, and stopped short before he brought it to any regular conclusion. Miss Ashton listened, or looked as if she listened, but returned not a single word in answer, continuing to fix her eyes on a small piece of embroidery, on which, as if by instinct or habit, her fingers were busily employed. Lady Ashton sat at some distance, almost screened from notice by the deep embrasure of the window in which she had placed her chair. From this she whispered, in a tone of voice, which, though soft and sweet, had something in it of admonition, if not command, Lucy, my dear, remember, have you heard what Bucklaw has been saying? The idea of her mother's presence seemed to have slipped from the unhappy girl's recollection. She started, dropped her needle, and repeated hastily, and almost in the same breath, the contradictory answers 
Yes, madam. No, no my lady. I, I beg pardon. I did not hear. You need not blush, my love, and still less need you look so pale and frightened, said Lady Ashton, coming forward. We know that maidens' ears must be slow in receiving a gentleman's language, but you must remember Mr. Haston speaks on a subject on which you have long since agreed to give him a favourable hearing. You know how much your father and I have our hearts set upon an event so extremely desirable. In Lady Ashton's voice, a tone of impressive and even stern innuendo was sedulously and skilfully concealed under an appearance of the most affectionate maternal tenderness. The manner was for Bucklaw, who was easily enough imposed upon. The matter of the exhortation was for the terrified Lucy, who well knew how to interpret her mother's hints, however skilfully their real purport might be veiled from general observation. Miss Ashton sat upright in her chair, cast round her a glance in which fear was mingled with a still wilder expression, but remained perfectly silent. Bucklaw, who had in the meantime paced the room to and fro until he had recovered his composure, now stopped within two or three yards of her chair, and broke out as follows. I believe I have been a damned fool, Miss Ashton. I have tried to speak to you, as people tell me young ladies like to be talked to, and I don't think you comprehend what I have been saying. And no wonder, for damn me if I understand it myself. But, however, once for all, and in broad Scotch, your father and mother like what is proposed, and if you can take a plain young fellow for your husband, who will never cross you in anything you have a mind to, I will place you at the head of the best establishment in the Three Lothians. You shall have Lady Gernington's lodging in the Canongate of Edinburgh. Go where you please, do what you please, and see what you please, and that's fair. Only I must have a corner at the board end for a worthless old playfellow of mine, whose company I would rather want than have, if it were not that the damned fellow has persuaded me that I can't do without him. And so I hope you won't accept against Craigie, although it might be easy to find much better company. Now, out upon you, Bucklaw, said Lady Ashton, again interposing. How can you think Lucy can have any objection to that blunt, honest, good-natured creature, Captain Craigengelt? Why, madam, replied Bucklaw, as to Craigie's sincerity, honesty, and good nature, they are, I believe, pretty much upon a par. But that's neither here nor there. The fellow knows my ways, and has got useful to me, and I cannot well do without him, as I said before. But all this is nothing to the purpose, for since I have mustered up courage to make a plain proposal, I would fain hear Miss Ashton, from her own lips, give me a plain answer. My dear Bucklaw, said Lady Ashton, let me spare Lucy's bashfulness. I tell you in her presence that she has already consented to be guided by her father and me in this matter. Lucy, my love, she added, with that singular combination of suavity of tone and pointed energy which we have already noticed, Lucy, my dearest love, speak for yourself. Is it not as I say? Her victim answered in a tremulous and hollow voice, I have promised to obey you, but upon one condition. She means, said Lady Ashton, turning to Bucklaw, 
she expects an answer to the demand which she has made upon the man at Vienna, or Ratisbon, or Paris, or where is he? For restitution of the engagement in which he had the art to involve her. You will not, I am sure, my dear friend, think it is wrong that she should feel much delicacy upon this head. Indeed, it concerns us all. Perfectly right, quite fair, said Bucklaw half humming, half speaking the end of the old song. It is best to be off with the old love before you be on with the new. But I thought, said he, pausing, you might have had an answer six times told from Ravenswood. Damn me, if I have not a mind to go fetch one myself, if Miss Ashton will honour me with the commission. By no means, said Lady Ashton. We have had the utmost difficulty of preventing Douglas for whom it would be more proper, from taking so rash a step. And do you think we could permit you, my good friend, almost equally dear to us, to go to a desperate man upon an errand so desperate? In fact, all the friends of the family are of opinion, and my dear Lucy herself ought so to think, that as this unworthy person has returned no answer to her letter, silence must on this, as in other cases, be held to give consent, and a contract must be supposed to be given up, when the party waves insisting upon it. Sir William, who should know best, is clear upon this subject, and therefore, my dear Lucy— Madam, said Lucy, with unwanted energy, urge me no farther. If this unhappy engagement be restored, I have already said you shall dispose of me as you will. Till then I should commit a heavy sin in the sight of God and man in doing what you require. But, my love, if this man remains obstinately silent... He will not be silent, answered Lucy. It is six weeks since I sent him a double of my former letter by a sure hand. You have not, you could not, you durst not, said Lady Ashton with violence, inconsistent with the tone she had intended to assume, but instantly correcting herself. My dearest Lucy, said she, in her sweetest tone of expostulation, how could you think of such a thing? No matter, said Bucklaw. I respect Miss Ashton for her sentiments, and I only wish I had been her messenger myself. And pray how long, Miss Ashton, said her mother ironically, are we to wait the return of your pacolet, your fairy messenger, since our humble couriers of flesh and blood could not be trusted in this matter? I have numbered weeks, days, hours, and minutes, said Miss Ashton. Within another week I shall have an answer, unless he is dead. Till that time, sir, she said, addressing Bucklaw, let me be thus far beholden to you, that you will beg my mother to forbear me upon this subject. I will make it my particular entreaty to Lady Ashton, said Bucklaw. By my honour, madam, I respect your feelings, and although the prosecution of this affair be rendered dearer to me than ever, yet, as I am a gentleman, I would renounce it, were it so urged as to give you a moment's pain. Mr. Haston, I think cannot comprehend that said lady ashton looking pale with anger when the daughter's happiness lies in the bosom of the mother 
Let me ask you, Miss Ashton, in what terms your last letter was couched. Exactly in the same, madam, answered Lucy, which you dictated on a former occasion. When eight days have elapsed, then, said her mother, resuming her tone of tenderness, we shall hope, my dearest love, that you will end this suspense. Miss Ashton must not be hurried, madam, said Bucklaw, whose bluntness of feelings did not by any means arise from want of good nature. Messengers may be stopped or delayed. I have known a day's journey broke by the casting of a foreshoe. Stay, let me see my calendar. The twentieth day from this is St. Jude's, and the day before I must be at Caverton Edge to see the match between the Laird of Kittlegirth's black mare and Johnson the Mealmonger's four-year-old colt. But I can ride all night, or Craigie can bring me word how the match goes, and I hope in the meantime, as I shall not myself distress Miss Ashton with any further importunity, that your ladyship yourself, and Sir William, and Colonel Douglas, will have the goodness to allow her uninterrupted time for making up her mind. Sir, said Miss Ashton, you are generous. As for that, madam, answered Bucklaw, I only pretend to be a plain, good-humoured young fellow, as I said before, who will willingly make you happy, if you will permit him, and show him how to do so. Having said this, he saluted her with more emotion than was consistent with his usual train of feeling, and took his leave. Lady Ashton, as she accompanied him out of the apartment, assuring him that her daughter did full justice to the sincerity of his attachment, and requesting him to see Sir William before his departure. Since, as she said, with a keen glance reverting towards Lucy, against St. Jude's Day, we must all be ready to sign and seal. To sign and seal, echoed Lucy in a muttering tone, as the door of the apartment closed. To sign and seal, to do and die. And clasping her extenuated hands together, she sunk back on the easy chair she occupied, in a state resembling stupor. From this she was shortly after awakened by the boisterous entry of her brother Henry, who clamorously reminded her of a promise to give him two yards of carnation ribbon to make knots to his new garters. With the most patient composure, Lucy arose, and opening a little ivory cabinet, sought out the ribbon the lad wanted, measured it accurately, cut it off into proper lengths, and knotted it into the fashion his boyish whim required. "'Then I shut the cabinet yet,' said Henry, "'for I must have some of your silver wire to fasten the bells to my hawk's jessies. "'And yet the new falcon's not worth them neither, "'for do you know, after all the plague we had to get her from the Erie, "'all the way at Posso in Manor Water, "'she's going to prove after all nothing better than a rifler. "'She just wets her singles.' in the blood of the partridge, and then breaks away, and lets her fly. And what good can the poor bird do after that, you know, except pine, and die in the first heather cow, or windbush she can crawl into? Right, Henry, right, very right, said Lucy, mournfully, holding the boy fast by the hand, after she had given him the wire he wanted. But there are more riflers in the world than your falcon, and more wounded birds that seek but to die in quiet that can find neither brake nor whinbush to hide their head in. Ah, that's some speech out of your romances, said the boy, and Sholto says they have turned your head. But I hear Norman whistling to the hawk, 
I must go fasten on the Jessies. And he scampered away with the thoughtless gaiety of boyhood, leaving his sister to the bitterness of her own reflections. It is decreed, she said, that every living creature, even those who owe me most kindness, are to shun me and leave me to those by whom I am beset. It is just it should be thus. Alone and uncounselled I involved myself in these perils. Alone and uncounselled I must extricate myself or die. End of chapter 29